excited to be here. Preaching behind this pulpit from the original church. I feel like it's good for a couple things. First of all, you can't see my shaking knees. And I think it's good to add some exclamation points. What do you think? (laughs) Thank you. All right, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. To come to be here as your body of believers. That we may worship together, learn together, rely on one another. Lord, please open our hearts and our minds to your word. That we may truly be effective. In Jesus' holy name we pray these things. Amen. So, imagine a religious household. You know, that that home that seems to do everything just right and in order. They go to all the classes, hear all the teachings, they're at every meeting, they do everything just right. And imagine a, a boy growing up in a home like that, and maybe his father's perfectionistic tendencies, they might, what's the word? The word just totally left me, but they it might uh, affect him negatively, but yet he still has his own perfectionistic tendencies. And, and maybe this guy's name is Saul. He's growing up in this home, right? And he goes and he's learning from, he's a smart guy, right? He's a good speaker. We know from the New Testament he's a good writer. But he's, he's learning from all these incredibly intelligent teachers. In fact, one of them had such a good reputation that he still to this day in the Jewish world has an excellent reputation as a phenomenal teacher. And, and this is the environment that Saul is growing up in. And he becomes a follower of the law. I mean, he follows it to a T. He's doing everything just right. And while he's growing up, he's watching this disturbance in this boy's life. There's this other guy. And he's not doing everything just right. And he's starting to frustrate the powers that be. Because even though he's not following everything just right and doing everything just right, his following is getting huge. Crazy things are happening. Miracles are happening. But he's not doing everything just right. And the chief priests, they really want to shut him down and shut him up. But he just won't. So they put him to death. They hang him on the cross. But he can't even do that right. Because three days later, he crawls out of the tomb. And, and the rumor starts spreading about the resurrection. And these followers, even though they're in great peril of their own lives, they're still following him. And they're growing in number. They have to shut this down. So there is Saul, perhaps a young man, watching over the coats of the men were stoning Jesus' follower, Stephen. And he stands back there, and he's approving of what's happening. 
And I don't know whether or not that was the exact time Saul decided to get on his soapbox and he whether that was the time where he definitely decided, I want to help shut this thing down because it's the right thing to do for God's law or not. But what we do know from Acts chapter 8, verse 3, is Paul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. He was rising through the ranks. He was getting more and more respected. And this guy had a resume. If you flip again to Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. This is this guy's resume. This is Saul's resume. But as happens so often when God has a plan for for our lives, a plot twist happens. Something shifts. In Acts 9, we find that Saul was breathing murderous threats towards the disciples of Jesus. He didn't just dislike them. He was breathing murderous threats. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So there he is on his way to Damascus, a letter in his back pocket giving him the authority to throw people in prison. When suddenly there's this intense light. And I don't know if I can effectively communicate to you how terrifying this light must have been. It was bright enough to blind him. And if that's not terrifying enough, a voice is coming. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They'd heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone speaking. Saul got up from the ground, opened his eyes, and he could see nothing. So they led him to Damascus by hand. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. A vision, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Now, 
Ananias had heard of Saul. <laughs> and I can imagine if I were Ananias, I'd be like, wait a second. In fact, Ananias replies to the Lord, I've heard many reports of this man. Isn't he the guy going around killing people just like me? Ananias was a braver man than I am. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. He spent several days with the disciples, and then he began preaching in the synagogue. In one moment, Saul was picked up and turned around in his entire life. He was set on another path. When the scales fell from his eyes, his self-righteousness fell away from his zeal, and he became a powerful tool filled with the Holy Spirit for the kingdom of God. Now, here's where it gets a little confusing because I've been talking about Saul, but now his name is Paul. So let's just all agree to give me a little grace, and when I mess up, you'll know what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> but Saul was faultless in his legalistic righteousness. Paul had faith. Saul was rising quickly through the ranks with power and authority. Paul was shipwrecked, stripped naked, beaten, thrown in prison, and at one point had to escape out of a city in a basket. Saul had the approval of men. Paul had a peace that surpasses understanding. Saul had a zeal for persecution. Paul had a zeal for Christ. That is a major change in a real man whose feet actually touched the water. The only explanation is a major catalyst was present. Now a catalyst, the definition of a catalyst is a substance that increases the rate of reaction without itself undergoing any permanent change. Isn't that a phenomenal analogy for the Holy Spirit? Something that creates a change without being used up and without changing itself. This is the Holy Spirit that we, through our Savior, Jesus Christ, have access to. Through Paul's introduction to Christ, through his revelation, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he had that catalyst he needed for change. It was a change that was completely internal. It was a change that was from something other than himself working inside him. 
See, no amount of studying or preparing could have flipped a guy around in a moment the way it flipped Saul to Paul. In, and, and he gets credit where credit is due. If you flip to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 12, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given to us. Saul thought he was working for God, but without the Spirit, he was sorely mistaken in the freedom that God wanted to offer. Verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Without inviting the Holy Spirit into our walk with God, we are thoroughly lacking. I had a conversation this week. Greg and I met with some youth pastors, and the topic of discussion is leading students in spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are important. But there's kind of a catch-22 because you fall in, in danger of teaching them a process and having them use the process without the power, the power being the Holy Spirit. Because then it, we just fall into the track of legalistic righteousness, and that will get us nowhere good. So this, this idea of how do we lead people how do we lead people in action and make sure we get across to them that it is not the action as much as the holy spirit that leads us to change see we can take quiet time you can sit in a room for 15 minutes quiet but i can't but maybe you can <laughs> you can sit quietly you can even read, you can glaze your eyes over these words, but if you don't invite the Holy Spirit into the process, you're in danger of misunderstanding what is behind these words. Which is exactly, it's so much of what Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about. It's the point he was trying to get to when he talked about the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the other laws hang on these. That's the part that Paul was missing when he was Saul. It's the part that he got when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That unless he did these actions, this prayer, the fasting, the studying with the Spirit of God, he was in danger of missing that all too important piece about love, mercy, and grace, which is the whole point of this gospel, that we are people who are intended to live in the love of the Holy Spirit. When we rely on the Holy Spirit, we rely on the mercy and grace of our Savior Jesus Christ. 
And the cool thing is, is not only does it have the capacity to change our own lives and twist our plots to something better than we can ever imagine, but it has the opportunity to have that effect on the people around us. Right now, I'd like to invite Joe to come up. We were talking about catalysts in staff meeting a couple weeks ago, and Joe shared a story that really got to me <laughs> about a catalyst that could happen in, in your life, correct? I grew up in um, southeast Nebraska in, um, on a farm, and uh, our family attended Zion Lutheran Church. It was, um, do you remember the pictures of the little white steepled church? And inside, I always think back how, um, how pretty it was. The altar was one of those white altars with all the spires and the little cubby holes and a lot of gold looking. And then over here on this wall, there was like a, a balcony. And the pastor would go in behind up the stair steps and he'd preach from up there. Well, Pastor Langsdorf was a very imposing man in my mind as a small child. But then put him up there and, <laughs> and talk very loud and very bold and um, disappointing. I was really scared of him. So I attended a parochial school, which was just across the street from the little white church, and I had a wonderful teacher for all five years that I was at school there. His name was Paul Heidorn. Paul taught all eight grades, all subjects, to all 24 of us. And that was about the highest enrollment, but you have to understand that was 24 students in all eight grades. So I had two classmates for five years. And uh, Pastor um, Paul Hydorn was a very gentle man, much like my dad, was a very gracious gentleman. I was really, really scared of Pastor Langsdorf. Well, the problem is he taught our religion class, which was just a regular class, just like spelling and math and everything else. And he required that we do a lot of memorization of like the creeds and the commandments and the petitions and the articles and on and on, which is not a bad thing to do. But he also made us stand up and recite these in front of everyone, which is probably not a bad thing to do, except I was a severe stutterer. And if you know anything about being under pressure and being a stutterer, it just magnifies everything. So my opinion of Pastor Langsdorf and of God was I feared both of them. I feared God. I feared Pastor Langsdorf because that was in my image. I could never get the words out. I could never be um, fill that, that heart where I could get the words out. I knew the words, but I just couldn't get them out. Well, then my family sold the farm, and we moved about 25 miles away, and we attended a new Lutheran church. It was a different denomination, and we had, this was, I was in sixth grade then, and for the first time, I attended a public school, and now I was really in a big school. I had 10 classmates that were boys and one other girl, so there was 12 of us in my class for 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And our religious studies then was on Saturday mornings from about 8 to noon every Saturday for 
sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and then we were confirmed as eighth graders. Well, lucky for me, uh, Pastor David Allen was a young pastor with a family, and he very clearly understood my problem of stuttering. And I was had worked myself up into such a frenzy because the words of the Lord's Prayer and the creeds had just slightly changed from what I came from in the other denomination. So I was, I was really a mess. And he said to me that it's not important the words that I say or can't say, but that I knew what the meaning of the words was and that God loved me even if I couldn't say the words. And so I was shown a lot of grace and I found out God loves me even when I was a stutterer and I couldn't say things right. And uh, it just totally changed my life. And it totally changed my life in that God is loving. Thank you, Jill. As she's telling that story and she's talking about memorizing scripture, it, it made me think of um, a program we had here a while ago where the kids were supposed to memorize scripture to, to get rewards and stuff. And we heard a lot of, for God so loved the world, he gave his one only son, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you couldn't be able to understand it. And one of the, one of the things Cindy and I grew concerned about was that they weren't internalizing the words. And then a few weeks ago, Jerry Fox came up and gave a testimony. And the way he used scripture so touched me. I mean, he knew it word for word, but this was internalized scripture that was coming from this man. And it, it was affecting him, and it was, it was real to him. And that is the way this scripture is to be intended. It is real. It is given. It is, a scripture, it is scripture that can have an effect on our lives. And I think, Joe, if I could, if I could have had that small Joe <laughs> so many years ago, I would have loved to have told her that even when we don't know the words to pray, even when we can't speak it, the Holy Spirit, it interprets for us. That is the power of the God that we serve. And it is, I feel so blessed to be one of his children. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to serve you. We all come to you. You all have different min missions and ministries for us, all different purposes and calls. But Lord, we invite you to be an active participant in those ministries and those calls that you have put on our lives. In your son's holy name, we pray these things. Amen.